Welcome to The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, receives her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor at California State University, East Bay, and also a philosophical counselor. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes material. Good morning, everyone. I'm very happy to uh, host today Professor uh, George Yancey. Uh, it, it's a great honor to have him today. George Yancey is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Philosophy at Emory University and the Montgomery Fellow at Dar Dartmouth College, one of the college highest honors. He's also the university at the University of Pennsylvania's inaugural fellow in the Provost Distinguished Faculty Fellowship Program. Yancey is the author, editor, and co-editor of over 20 books. He is cited uh, at Academic Influence as one of the top 10 influential philosophers in the last 10 years, based upon the numbers of citation and web presence. He also has published uh, over 200 combined scholarly articles, uh, chapters, and interviews that have appeared in professional journals, books, uh, at various news sites. He is well known for his influential essays and interviews at New York Times uh, with a philosophy column uh, titled The Stone and uh, at the prominent uh, political website The Truth Out. Yancey's uh, areas of focus are critical whiteness studies, uh, critical philosophy of race, uh, critical phenomenology, and philosophy of the Black experience. He also um, is also the editor of the book series uh, Philosophy of Race uh, at Lexington Books. So it's uh, absolutely my pleasure to have you here today, George. Um, I mean, uh, tell us, uh, we, we can start from here. Tell us uh, what um, makes you happy about philosophy. <laughs> if uh, sure. sure. So uh, to, to give you to answer that question, I have to go back to when my when I discovered philosophy. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to be a pilot when I was a teenager. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And, and I would often look in uh, my mother had bought us uh, what were called these uh, world encyclopedias. And uh, there were the blue set. And I would often look at um, pilots, look at pilots, airplanes, and I would look under P in the encyclopedia. And so <laughs> yeah. one day, serendipitously, I came across the term philosophy as uh -huh. I was looking in the encyclopedia that began with P. And, um, and I thought, philosophia, it said, you know, love of wisdom. I thought, what on earth is this, the love of wisdom? And so I read the entire entry, and I thought to myself, you know, is this something I can actually study? <laughs> and so I remember going to school that very next day, I was still in high school, and I asked a teacher of mine, is this something you can actually get a degree in? And she said, yes, you can get a degree. <laughs> and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I, you know, I can love wisdom, uh, for, uh, you know, as a job, for a job, uh, as, as doing a job. And she says, yes. So um, I, was, I was sort of bitten, or I, I sort of bit the apple, I guess, of philosophy right. at that point. Um, and what was interesting is that, 
when I read that entry in the encyclopedia, it resonated with various ways in which I found myself thinking about issues at a very young age. And I can give you two very, mm -hmm. very poignant examples. Uh, I remember when I was very young, uh, my mother brought me up as a, uh, a Baptist Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, at night, she would have me and my sister say our prayers. So there was this prayer that you say when you're sitting next to your mother, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep that, that prayer. And you say, God bless my, my mother, my friends, et cetera, et cetera. So one day, I asked my mom, I said, and I must have been about 10 years old, I asked my mom, was it okay to pray for the devil? <laughs> she was completely thrown by this, which is, you know, uh, uh, predictable. And it must have taken her a month or so on to, uh, to think about this. And eventually she said, yes. So there I was, you know, as a 10 year old on my knees, um, at the end of the prayer, I would say, God bless my mother, my sister, and God bless the devil. And um, what's interesting retrospectively is that this, for me at this very young age was a serious, I didn't know it, but a serious okay. theological issue because I was being taught on the one hand in church that we ought to pray for those who need redemption. And the devil was being depicted as, as this entity that was beyond redemption. So I figured this, you know, prayer from this little black kid, you know, living, <laughs> li living in the, the inner city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, might be able to help the devil. So that was one instance. And then there was another where I said to my mother once, again, I'm very young, I said, and I was angry and I said, why did you give birth to me? I wish you had not given birth to me. And what motivated that point or that form of protest is that I knew things died. I mean, I had, we had like, you know, goldfish, they would die. Uh, but I didn't know at some point that I would die. Mm. It just had not occurred to me. Mm. And, and with this incredible force, it occurred to me one day that I will not be and my mother will not be. And so I said to her, why did you bring me into this world mm -hmm. such that I have to leave it? Mm -hmm. Which means, you know, a complete rupture in my continuity, a, key, a complete rupture in our relationship, the loving of my sister, the loving of my mother. And I was really angry. I can't remember what her, um, what her response was. <laughs> Poor mother. Right, right. <laughs> but, but she accepted it. And, um, but I remember that being sort of a, a sense of realization of my finitude at that early age. But it was as if I had signed onto a contract that mm. was you know, a mistake, a deep existential mistake. <laughs> and so in reading the encyclopedic entry, ah. uh, it fed, it, it for me spoke to all of these while implicit, not fully articulated sensibilities around questions of life, death, um, evil, God, it resonated with, with those things. And I thought, yes. So in a way, I, I like to think that philosophy, I wasn't, I didn't just find philosophy, but a way, there's a way in which philosophy found me. Mm, seems so. Right? I mean, you I became mean, the pilot of ideas, the, the, the pilot, right? Uh, <laughs> Another absolutely. kind. <laughs> no, that's very good. In fact, uh, I've often said, you know, philosophy kind of soars. So airplanes kind of soar, they fly high. So there's a kind of an yeah. analogy there, right? Resonance there. Um, yeah, so that, that's the thing I think that, that uh, is at the core 
that continues to be to function as the core of what propels me, the core that feeds the passion uh, of my philosophical sensibilities. One thing you wrote uh, that uh, resonated a lot uh, with uh, my discovery of philosophy uh, and goes on the opposite side is the sense of nausea, is the sense of um, dizziness that philosophy can give. I remember when I started doing philosophy, ooh, it was uh, overwhelming. Then I discovered Sartre <laughs> and maybe it became even more overwhelming, but at least uh, I gave a name to it. Uh, can, can you tell me more about uh, your experience with, uh, with those feelings uh, when you encountered philosophy for the first time? Yeah, sure. Um... Uh, again, uh, I have these wonderful experiences that I can point to. I recall once, again, maybe I was about, oh, 17 years old, mm. um, that it occurred to me, and while this is a very strange thing to say, I think Wittgenstein seems uh. to have understood this kind of thing where um, you're trying to articulate or put into words um, what it means to be. Mm. Uh, and you can't quite represent that thing. Um, it seems to, to be so elusive. Um, and so one day I'm lying in my bed and it occurs to me, again, occurs to me that I am, that I exist. Uh. Um, and there were, right, and it was such a vivacious moment that came with this sense of, I, would, I like the way you put it, dizziness, uh -huh. uh, a, a certain kind of perplexity and aporia um, but definitely dizziness in the sense in which one is thrown off, one becomes disoriented mm -hmm. to one's life, right? Because there's a way in which we are just in the world doing all the things that we do. So this is kind of Heideggerian in a way, you know, we're, we're, we're eating, we're going to school, we're, we're drinking out of cups, <laughs> we're taking showers, we're doing all those things that right. are socially significant. And then all of a sudden, Beyond that, beyond, as it were, das man or the they or the quotidian, there is this emergence uh, that one is. And it was something about the pregnancy of that feeling, that notion, that was so disorienting, so perplexing, that my body actually registered a certain kind of, uh, I, I, I refer to it in a fancy way as a tremulous trepidation <laughs> like uh, like i'm really here yeah uh -huh. yeah uh, and, and for me you know philosophy has always been or at least as i've come to mature a very embodied phenomenon philosophy for me is not an abstract cartesian project mm -hmm. um that takes us into this otherworldly realm it, it and even if we speculate in that direction it begins ab initio from the very beginning as something fundamentally embodied. And so that feeling uh, continues to exist for me, that sense of perplexity, that sense of, um, of uh, disorientation. And I think that that's what philosophy ought to do. It, it ought to throw us uh, into a state of disarray, mm -hmm. uh, such that we begin to question the calcified assumptions, presuppositions, um, ideas that we think are absolute truth or yeah. you know and, and what we find is that once the the that so-called bedrock is shaken mm -hmm. there's ways in which often it can lead to nihilism or it can lead to something else right 
uh, or a kind of deep skepticism. For me, it led to a kind of generative process. Mm -hmm. So out of, out of that shaking, um, for me, became it, it generated this kind of disposition to further interrogate other uh, assumptions that I had taken for granted about my life, about existence, about the existence of God, you know, the meaning of love, you, know, you, you right. name it, right? Right. Um, so there's this flood of dizziness. <laughs> which is which we don't think we don't think to be dizzy suggests that we are somehow not coherent, but it philosophy creates that incoherence, uh -huh. which has its own generativity. I think. Absolutely, yeah, it keeps you alive. It's yes. uh, that amount of oxygen that comes at you all at once. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And you know, Nietzsche, I'm pretty sure, had this idea of philosophy not being mummified right mm -hmm. so uh and so i find that oftentimes i'm not interested in reproducing what has existed already i'm looking for that new thing that uh, lacuna that has not been filled uh mm -hmm. so that philosophy constantly shows its human face yeah. its human face which is often a face of deep suffering and so for me this is why you know philosophy is uh, as a site of passion, etymologically is also a site of deep suffering because it takes on these issues that are so meaningful for me and so meaningful for all of us collectively. Uh, let's talk a little about, uh, I mean, the main topics, the main themes of your research. I mean, you are a groundbreaker philosopher. You discussed uh, uh, in a critical way, whiteness, race, uh, um, the, the, the condition of classes left behind. Uh, can you give us a sense of how uh, you put together philosophy and these themes? Where, this, uh, where does this research uh, uh, lead you to? Uh, how does it work still today? Mm. Yeah, I, I, again, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I edited a book years ago um, called The Philosophical Eye, uh, mm -hmm. Personal Reflections on Philosophy. And in that book, my contention was that we are uh, homo narrans and what I call, well, I didn't, I didn't coin these terms, homo narrans and homo significans. We, in some sense, create who we are through the narratives that we tell. And we also signify our identities in terms of who we are through language. Um, so we're all born into a language. There's a, there's a passive aspect of the homo narrans. We're all born into stories, rather. And we're all, all born into narratives as well as homo significans. But there is the active part where we tell our own stories mm -hmm. and where we begin to signify for ourselves. For example, if you think about uh, the uh, black theorist Malcolm X, when he was born, he was born as Malcolm Little, oh. but then he became then he became Malcolm X when he joined the Nation of Islam, and eventually he completely changed his name to El Haj Malik El Shabazz. So there's a way in which he was born into a world in which he inherited this white man's name, you know, Malcolm Little, and then he began to signify his own name, which implies a certain kind of agency. So, so for me, um, when I entered uh, philosophy, I was very much interested in um, Plato. Plato was the central figure for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember 
when I was about 18 years old, I would go around looking in the streets for the platonic form of a tree. I mean, it, it really? sounds so funny. Yes. Because <laughs> you, you have to remember, I'm reading Plato on my own, so I'm not getting a lot. Right. But, but I know that he is saying something about these forms that exist outside of space and time. And there's a moment where I actually fell in love with trees because I was looking for the, the form of the tree and I, and I didn't seem to be successful at finding it. Um, but, and so I knew that when I went as an undergrad during philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, it would probably be in the area of uh, epistemology, something like that, um, and metaphysics. And then I moved from Pitt, when I, by the time I got to Yale University, uh, I became interested in questions of hermeneutics mm -hmm. uh, and interpretation, which led me to questions of not just hermeneutics in terms of texts, but hermeneutics as a broader framework in terms of thinking about how interpretation and rhetoric functions in the area of science and how it is that the claims that we make, for example, that atoms exist or that subatomic uh, sub particles exist, how do we know there's a direct correspondence between our language and that reality? Sort of the problem that Richard Rorty was challenging, as opposed to that hermeneutic, that framework, or that paradigm, as Thomas S. Kuhn put it, how it shapes the world that emerges. So by the time I got to Yale, I was very much interested in historicity and, and concretion and the idea of particularity and the way in which each of us uh, are situated, each is situated within a historical context and how that context shapes our knowledge claims. Mm -hmm. So by the time I'm ending Yale, I'm thinking, who am I as a historical being? How is it that race and gender affect my identity and my life chances? Uh, what, how does race shape the epistemology that I hold? How does, in the case of white people, how does that shape their epistemology and their parad paradigmatic understanding of the world? So it was that kind of trajectory that got me to these issues involving questions of race and identity. And in relationship to my own identity, what I came to discover is that there was an entire field called African-American philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had no idea. And partly what students have to understand is that uh, we're still very small. The last I checked, African-Americans make up about 1.1% of the profession of philosophy. Yeah. And there might be, might be at least 40, maybe less African-American women who have PhDs in the field of philosophy. So philosophy is fundamentally a white male profession. It may very well be the whitest of the humanities. Right. And, when that, and when we find that to be the case, my very presence in the field uh, becomes noticeable, not only because of the monochromatic whiteness of the field, but also because of what our dear friend, the late Charles Mills said, the cognitive and, and intellectual whiteness of the field where some of the ideas don't resonate with uh, me yeah yeah so so this got me sort of thinking very seriously uh charles mills for example he makes this point in an article he calls uh entitles non-cartesian zooms uh or non-cartesian zooms non-cartesian zooms and he says look um, Descartes wants to, us to take him seriously when he says that we don't exist. You know, right there, right there in the first meditation, 
he's employing hyperbolic doubt and he's doubting whether he exists, he's doubting whether the table exists, whether you and I are having this conversation. Uh, and then he eventually you know, doubts his body. And then Charles Mills says, let's, let's take that as a paradigmatic form of doing philosophy. And imagine having black students or students of color in your classroom and have them bear witness to all the news that's going on, let's say about the death of Trayvon Martin or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. And then as you're teaching that, asking them to take seriously Descartes' assumption that all of us can easily assume that we don't exist. Mm -hmm. He says, then a deep aporia sets in. Then you begin to think, wait a minute, is this, not only is Descartes not relevant to my life, but is Western philosophy more broadly relevant to my life, right? Because he brings in Ralph Ellison. Um, Ralph Ellison wrote this incredible book called Invisible Man. And the problem with the Invisible Man is that he is not seen. He is rendered invisible because white people refuse to see him. Yeah. And you can imagine the existential alienation that that creates. And Mills contrasts Ellison with Descartes. And it, there's a way in which Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man doesn't have to hypothetically uh, assume that he doesn't exist. There's a way in which he does not really exist in a world of white hegemony and white power. Yeah. So I think that coming from that embodied place of being racialized as black and trying to grapple with the question of anti-black racism, and at the same time trying to make philosophy relevant, trying to make it speak to my identity as a black male and the kinds of predicaments that I have uh, become very salient. So there's a way in which it's not easy for black students or students of color or even women for that matter to very easily assume the epistemic position of a Cartesian because of all the things they're experiencing. If you remember uh, Elizabeth of Bohemia is often referred to as a proto-feminist because when she was in conversation with Descartes, she said to Descartes, look, I don't think that I can carry out your project. Right? <laughs> and, and it's not because she wasn't cognitive, she didn't have the cognitive wherewithal. She was saying there's something about my station in life mm -hmm. such that I can't utilize the privacy <laughs> that your project requires, right? So there's a way in which yeah. doing that kind of philosophy can be seen as Charles Mills would remind us as a perk of white male privilege. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in, when I teach courses, I'm interested in constantly reminding my students that we live in a real world in which philosophy, some forms of philosophy can obfuscate those realities. So this is why I think I always remind my students, I have them look at each other and I say, you know, stare at each other for a few minutes because they're often looking at me, looking forward. <laughs> right. And I say, close your eyes and imagine that 100 years from now, none of us will be alive. Mm -hmm. And then I remind them that Cornell West says that um, we will one day become the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. <laughs> and it's at this moment that there is a hush that goes across the room. It's like, Students are quiet. Some will might, might uh, you can see a nervous smile on their faces. But mm -hmm. all of a sudden, there's this way in which all of us in that classroom begin to inhabit 
a very common sense of our finitude and then the weight of what it means to be and the weight of what it means someday not to be, perhaps forever. We may never be, we don't know. And the, the, the gravity of that moment ushers in and it radically changes their perception of what it means to be in that classroom and what it means to study philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, and this is why I think that the, the relationship between the weightiness of death and the weightiness of race become very important. They begin to understand that, wait, when I'm in this class and I'm white, that's fundamentally different from the way in which if someone is black or person of color in this classroom. So we try to tease out what that means in terms of what it means to be part of a system mm-hmm. that supports you, that gives you an advantage that doesn't give other students. So we talk about what it means, for an example, for a black person to be pulled over by a police officer and how when they get pulled over, they say things like, oh, here we go again, because they understand what this means. Whereas when my white students are pulled over, they have the privilege of thinking about other options as to why they're being pulled over. For an example, they might say to themselves, did I fail to signal? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm. Did I run a red light? Um, you know, are my is my you know is my my registration date uh, you know up up uh, up to speed or something of the sort? My registration card. But notice what they're notice what they're doing. They're looking around for instances that are non-racial. So there's this incredible privilege that they have the the privilege of a certain kind of conceptual latitude to think about or, or an imaginary that allows them to think about other possibilities other than seeing themselves as raced because whiteness is a site that is unnamed and it's considered non-raced because whiteness is what I call the transcendental norm. It defines other groups as racialized or as different or deviant, but it itself is the standard against which those differences are constituted. Yeah, it seems that with this exercise, you're basically helping them to deconstruct a white metaphysics and to build a a new metaphysics that can have multiple possibilities because uh, yeah Descartes uh, proposes us uh, uh, transcendental presuppositions that are typically white while uh, if you look at each other for a moment uh, and you seep into you know what you see then you can uh, yeah you can see different uh, conditions mm. of possibilities of mm. reality that, that, that's excellent i mean in fact I, I like the way you put that there's a way in which descartes metaphysics of the self because we're all um you know, kind of, uh, uh, we're all mental substance, right? Um, and for, for Descartes, there's a way in which when he's in the meditations talking to his interlocutor, when we're reading the text, mm-hmm. he's supposing a universal, neutral, epistemic subject, right? And, and so race or gender or sexual orientation or ability, all of these things are irrelevant to Descartes. <laughs> and so there's a way in which I think you're right. The idea is to deconstruct a certain kind of metaphysics of whiteness that um, is able to um, 
I don't want to say allow for, but what you're doing is deconstructing and doing a kind of genealogy where you pull back, you pull back the veil, mm -hmm. the illusion of whiteness as universal and reveal it as another particularity. Exactly, exactly. Right. We have that embedded. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, absolutely. Which, of course, then radicalizes uh, the classroom in a very different way. Then we're forced to come to terms with uh, the concretization of ideas. We're forced to come to terms of history, um, standpoint epistemology. We're forced to, to come to terms with the way in which each one of us belong to groups in ways that we often think that we don't, because we often think of ourselves as neoliberal subjects, sort of atoms, uh, at, at, uh, we're autonomized, but that's not true. We're part of these aggregates, and we have to think about the ways in which those aggregates impact, not just how we comport ourselves in the world, but also how we think about the world, how we conceptualize the world, how we imagine what is possible and what isn't possible how we are ethical or unethical toward the world. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes all the way down. If, if you will, for me, the self is fundamentally uh, historical all the way down. Mm -hmm. And so in re really going back to your question about busyness, there's a way in which I'm, my students are being, my white students become incredibly dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and they do this through the term that I love is um, paresia. P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A, and parisia uh, is the Greek term that means courageous speech or fearless speech. Mm -hmm. And what I, and Foucault talks about that term as a term that perhaps has um, one walking on the edge of death because one dares to speak up against uh, those hegemonic structures uh, that can easily, uh, you know, cause one's death. And, but with parisia or courageous speech, there's a, there also has to be courageous listening. And with courageous listening, there's vulnerability. So what I'm trying to do in my classrooms then, for me, philosophy is about vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, vulnerability, vul being vulnerable doesn't have a, a, a very, doesn't have a, it's not used much in, in the political discourse, right? But vulnerability is an incredible um, way of, of being receptive, uh, being open. Uh, another phrase that I often use is being unsutured, um, of a, a way that we open ourselves to modes of feeling, modes of pain, modes of being different that um, really strike us and ought to make us disoriented. So that when my students leave my classrooms, oftentimes they leave in silence. Mm. It's when they leave in silence that I know that it's something has happened in that classroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. and, and sometimes they'll say, you know, did he really say that? <laughs> when they say that, you know, particularly after I say that we're all going to die, it's like, did he really say that? <laughs> you know, this morning at 10 a.m.? Yes, I did say it. Uh, welcome to the club of, yeah. uh, of, of being completely dizzy uh, and falling in love with philosophy. Yeah. That's wonderful. I wish I, I was in one of your classes <laughs> now <laughs> to learn. Look, coming back to um, the, the beginning of your answer, I'm curious if uh, you understood, uh, you discovered uh, what kind of tree you are. You were talking about uh, <laughs> reading Plato and uh, looking around for these trees and uh, 
looking for the idea of the tree, but in fact, you found the manifestation mm. of the trees, the, the, the reality of the trees. Mm. Uh, what kind of narrative, what kind of um, significance did you give to yourself, to your life? Did you discover, yeah, what, what type of tree? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, wow. It, it, you know, you're, that's a really good question. And you're forcing me to, in a good way, to, to think retrospectively about this. Uh -huh. um, so I would say that in my effort to discover that tree that is timeless, that does not have any spatial temporal relation to the empirical world, there's a way in which uh, the tree that I discovered was the tree that is uh, has a a materiality. Uh, it is uh, it it gives itself over to touch. It mm -hmm. gives itself over to a certain fragrance. Uh, mm -hmm. And while I didn't taste the tree, it would give itself over to a certain <laughs> taste as well. Um, but there's a way in which uh, the tree that I discovered and also the framework that it opened up then is the fleshiness of life mm -hmm. as opposed to this, um, uh, we'll call it uh, disembodied mm -hmm. uh, abstract thing called a form. And mm -hmm. as a result then, it suggests a, a certain kind of my, my preoccupation then with embodied relationality, right? Uh, rather than being so preoccupied with the vertical, mm -hmm. I became interested in the horizontal, mm -hmm. the, the historical, the quotidian, the very thing that it seemed like philosophy was saying, no, don't go in that direction. And as such, allowing me to appreciate the way in which all of us uh, are connected, the way in which all of us are linked, and the way in which uh, all of us ought to be, uh, in Judith Butler's words, grievable, mm -hmm. uh, the ways in which all of us suffer, the ways in which all of us are in pain um, and are wounded on a daily basis. And while I haven't completely given up the vertical, because I think for me, the vertical and the horizontal work together in a kind of uh, cruciform way, mm -hmm. um, I think that rather than being so preoccupied with the vertical, I think that the work to be done is on the horizontal. The mm -hmm. idea is to, if, if, to put this in ecological terms, what matters is not the metaphysical tree. Mm -hmm. What matters is the embodied tree that mm -hmm. will help sustain us during mm -hmm. climate crisis. <laughs> right? yeah. if, if, you, if you link it that way, I'm so glad that you put it that way. That's a really wonderful way of forcing me to think this. Um, there's a way in which the, ver the, the horizontal brings us back to the necessity to live lives and to, to live lives of, of deep meaning so that we understand the way in which we are sutured to others and the ways in which we're implicated in the lives of others. It's what I call an ontology of no edges. Mm -hmm. The fact that there isn't an edge, uh, an outermost limit. We're always already linked and contiguous with others. Okay. And I think in, in that reality, it, it, that suggests an incredible level of responsibility, not only just my responsibility to you and you to me and me to the audience, 
and the audience to me, but also uh, the world, nature. I mean, COVID has, if it's taught us anything, it's taught us the ways in which we are not neoliberal, we are not atomic. We are intricately, fundamentally intricately linked, yeah. right? Um, so, so, such that um, when we do something that we think we're doing in isolation, it creates ripples, right? In fact, it can destroy an entire ecosystem. Um, so I, I think that, um, the, the, oh, that's really good. The kind of tree then that becomes important to me uh, is the, the tree that has roots, the tree that is grounded in the earth um, um, in such a way that uh, it's interconnected and in such a way that what we really want to do is, is undergird those roots uh, with, with nourishment. We want to undergird them with um, the kind of knowledge, the kind of wisdom that will help us all grow uh, in a much more radical way, not just uh, growing in the sense that we grow within an already existing system or structure, but as Judith Butler says, where there's an in insurrection at the level of ontology itself, right? So that when we're talking about inclusion, Wendy Brown talks about this, inclusion, um, according to a kind of liberal multiculturalism, inclusion just says, hey, look, we're here, notice us. Or where the power structure says, you see you're here, but being here is not does not constitute radicality because just putting different faces and different bodies in certain places doesn't itself shift ipso facto the system itself, right? So rather than that liberal multiculturalism, uh, which can actually reproduce, even if one is unaware, reproduce the very structures that required the inclusion in the first place, I think that what we need to do then is to undo those, those structures, to undo the very paradigmatic way in which we think about what constitutes the human, paradigmatic way in which we think about our relationship to the earth, which is also an other, yeah. right? Uh, and we have to come to terms and we have to ask ourselves, how does that other speak to us in its own language, not in our language, right? Um, so, so yeah, that 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 tree point brought me. <laughs> thank you. For that. Your tree point is, has brought me to uh, the appreciation of mundanity and the appreciation of the everyday, uh, the 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 the, the face-to-face -face relations, uh, and the responsibility uh, that we have to the other. That is very that is mutual and interdependent. Absolutely. And uh, it is curious to see how Kant uh, gave us the image of trees as competitors with each other, right? Well, instead, uh, uh, the, the, the reality is that the trees are very, it's a, it's a strong intersubjective community, so mm. much so that if you want to replant uh, a forest and so on, you have to understand who is the mother, the chief tree that gives the nourishment to the other group, and then mm. move the tree with others. I mean, there's a, a community, not a, a competition. Absolutely, and I like that. And, and, the complex, and the complexity of roots, right? Exactly. The way in which we think about that over a kind of arboric uh, understanding yeah. of, of trees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the metaphor works uh, also 
out of uh, the, the the metaphor itself. Look, I I I know I read that at some point uh, you had uh, I don't know I I suppose but maybe not. You had to rethink yourself. You had to uh, retrace yourself. I I read that at some point you became. A dangerous philosopher. Mm. That, oh God, that you became part of the philosopher's watch list. What was that? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. So, so in 2015, I I wrote. Uh, this is when I was writing for the the Stone, um, and I wrote. Uh, I had done a series of interviews actually, which was quite unprecedented uh, at the New York Times on race. So I interview various. Um, philosophers who, who raced from Anthony Appiah to Naomi Zak and, and some others. Uh, it was quite, quite incredible. People loved uh, tuning in and reading the next interview that I would do. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the late Gary Gutting did a series of interviews on uh, philosophers of religion. And his last piece that he wrote, instead of interviewing someone, he decided to interview himself, which was pretty, pretty, pretty creative, I thought. But I thought to myself, my end piece, I didn't want to sort of interview myself. I thought that what I wanted to do is bring out whiteness in a more thematized way. I thought to myself, how can I construct a letter that will speak to white people of whiteness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in such a way that it wouldn't make them defensive? Mm-hmm. So I called this this letter, Dear White America. So it's the salutation. It was yeah. a letter in which I said it was an act of love. It was a gesture of love. Um, in fact, in the letter, I even said things like, look, I am a sexist. I said that. Um, and I said, there's great risk of me saying this publicly. I am a sexist. And I said, look, I understand that I'm not Bill Cosby or, or, or Weinstein or Epstein in that sense. I understand that. But nonetheless, as a self-identified male, I have undergone the inculcation of various ways of perceiving the world, ways of perceiving women. I have embedded within me the male gaze, which I think is fundamentally uh, violent toward women. I have internalized certain affects, certain judgments, certain aesthetic standards, all of which mediate my relationship with women, which can be very dangerous and procrustean in as much as it delimits the very being of a woman. It's mm-hmm. violent toward the being of a woman. So I, I, I gave them that, meaning in the paper, I thought, let me show you what vulnerability looks like. Mm-hmm. Let me publicly say it. Yeah. I must say yeah. it. So the piece was published. It came out, uh, as I recall, it came out on Christmas morning. Oh, no. So it was a sort of a metaphorical and literal gift in a certain way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was at that moment that the emails started. Ah, immediately. So I, I, Im- immediately. Wow. And I mean, I mean an influx. The, the Dear White America just went viral. And I got email messages. I eventually got voice messages at my university. I started to get physical mail sent to me, uh, postcards. Um, so people would write letters. Uh, put an, uh, a stamp on the envelope, and I don't know if I can use the, the N-word on the podcast, but I'll say it, uh, just to call me a nigger in writing. 
right? I have been called the N-word since the publication of that piece more times than I can remember. I have been called names from monkeys to apes to mm. words I can't even begin to share with you right now. Um, uh, death threats. It got so bad that I needed to have Emory police escort me to my classes. And when I went to give public talks, I would be, for me, it would be a requirement that they have police in the back of the, the auditorium or wherever it was I was lecturing. And of course, again, my, also my name was put on the professor, the, the, the professor watch list, um, which is a conservative website that apparently uh, surveils places under surveillance um, thinkers who are deemed leftist. Now, I've never called myself a left thinker. Um, but I made it on the the, the watch, list, you know, <laughs> which, which is which is a very draconian, right? Which is a very draconian, very yeah. Orwellian, yeah. you know, Orwellian conceptualization. Um, so what I wanted is for a level of honesty. I wanted white people to fracture, to to unsuture, to be vulnerable, to be wounded, which is that which that word means etymologically. And while I did get some very fascinating responses that were positive, the majority were horrible, deep, uh, racist, vitriolic nastiness that some of, some of which I couldn't even imagine. There was one that said um, the person wanted to um, put a meat hook into my body. What one person wrote, and I'm assuming it was a male, he wrote, a white male, he wrote that the reason that Yancey wrote Dear White America is that so he could have more sex with white women. Oh. <laughs> now, I, I thought to myself, surely it must be easier to have sex with white women than to write a letter for the New York, to the New York Times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but, but notice, notice we have to ask ourselves, whose imaginary is this coming from? Whose projections are these? Right? So all I was doing is asking white people to think about the way in which, even though they may not see themselves as racist, they are implicated. They are yeah. complicit in a system, right? Mm -hmm. That where there is their skin in the game, such right. that the distinction between non-racist and racist becomes a little confusing, right? It's not clear. And while it was clear to me, as I made clear, that I'm not saying that you're a part of the Klan, or the, the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo movement, that's obvious. But to be racist, um, it's not necessary for one to be part of the Klan, right? And that was the message. And um, I'll put it this way, white America's response was evasion, denial, and violence. That was its response to my letter, Dear White America. And in response to that piece, I decided to write uh, an article called uh, I am a dangerous professor. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah tell us and, and, and that's, and that's, and, and fascinatingly enough, a lot of junior scholars wrote to me saying, you know, thank you so very much for saying this because I can't say it because I might lose my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's true, so. So, <clears throat> it yeah. felt good uh, for me to have written this, but also by dangerous professor or dangerous philosopher, what I meant by that is that I, if, if teaching your students to question fundamental assumptions about what goodness is and what justice is and what beauty is and what it means to be a, 
um, what it means to be a beautiful human being or a virtuous soul if, if asking my students to think about their own finitude and their own imminent death, to get them to think about the ways in which they are constituted beyond their own agency in ways that they don't want to be constituted. If that's what, if that's what it means to be a dangerous professor or a dangerous philosopher, then I am in fact a dangerous professor and dangerous philosopher because that's what I want my students to do. I don't want them to do what, what Paulo Freire critiqued as the banking system of education, right? You're not just a blank slate that comes up, shows up in my classroom, right? You already have uh, a wherewithal of critical ideas and language, but now it's time for us to engage dialogically and see what happens in that space, a sort of higher form of conscientization mm -hmm. uh, where we begin to now think about our world critically, but not just the world, ourselves critically and to be honest. So I think honesty is so incredible in a classroom. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I want my students to be. I want them to be honest to the point where, honest to a fault, where mm -hmm. they are prepared. And of course, but to do this, you have to create a context within which the whole classroom experiences this kind of collective vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And, but yet, yet a vulnerability, because it wouldn't be, vulnerability doesn't make sense if there's nothing to lose, <laughs> if there's nothing to risk. So my students come to understand that there's something to lose. And often the things that we're talking about are things like sexism, patriarchy, um, um, blind and violent forms of capitalism and materialism, militarism, uh, white supremacy, xenophobia. That's what we're trying to lose, right? That's what we're trying to understand how that stuff doesn't exist just out there in the world, but how it exists within us. So that for me, then doing philosophy is not, tries to transcend the extramural and intramural distinction. There's a way in which philosophy has to become public, and there's a way in which the public is already in the classroom that our classroom spaces are not these sacred, um, hollowed ground, right? It's not, it's not that. They're muddy. They're, they're dirty spaces. They're confusing Ooh. spaces. <laughs> right there Very. in the classroom, you know? Um, yeah, so that, that was the story. That's the story behind I am a dangerous professor. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, Socrates, uh, Reese, well, Reese, that was put to death for much less, maybe, uh, what can you say? <laughs> it said, uh, I am glad that you make your student do this uh, gazing exercise because I think it's really the answer. I wonder if uh, teaching so little philosophy in the US uh, and unfortunately now all over the world because mm. we don't teach much philosophy lead to these results. Mm. Uh, because questioning yourself or your identity is tough. You oh, lose your certainties, and this creates a wave of um, hatred feelings that are uh, shocking. And it's in fact uh, just a healthy exercise uh, to be clean, to you know, take a shower. I would say, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, today I will question this aspect of myself. I will yes. clean this other, just to regenerate yourself, uh, yes. to breathe more. 
but uh, I understand how for many people this is incredibly scary. And in the U.S., it's very scary, particularly when you have uh, right-wing Republicans and just the right more generally um, who are, you know, burning certain, well, banning certain books, perhaps, perhaps burning soon, yeah, banning books or, or trying to get rid of critical race theory and misconstruing its meaning um, and its origin. Uh, I, I think that uh, in the face of the kind of populism and demagoguery um, uh, and um, neo-fascism that we're experiencing within the U.S., I think philosophy is certainly the enemy of the state. There's mm. no question about it. Um, but you, 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 you raise the point about Socrates, right? And depending on one's interpretation of Socrates, I read him radically. I think that they wanted to put him to death because he practiced Parisia. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think that being a gadfly uh, and stinging people, and by stinging, making them aware of ha having them to see the brutality in front of them. Uh, I, I remember I was reading just a little passage from Susan Sontag, mm. philosopher Susan Sontag, where she was talking about looking at images on the television of brutality and death. And I remember looking at the uh, the deaths that were taking place uh, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And she says that, and I felt sympathy for these individuals, but Susan Sontag brings critical attention to the concept of sympathy and says that sympathy itself can imply innocence, mm -hmm. which also implies impotence. And how does, how does that work? Well, it sort of says, I'm on the other side of the television, looking at these images that are miles and miles away. And this sympathy that I have suggests that somehow what I am as an American uh, is disarticulated from the violence that's happening in the Ukraine, right? And I like that, right? I like that because it, it suggests that there's a way in which when we're sympathetic or when we're empathetic or when we show goodwill, we uh, create a distanciation from the ways in which we are implicated or complicit with the pain and suffering precisely of the person that we're having empathy or sympathy for, because we never question what is my role in that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, and so you're right. So th there's a way in which uh, what I want my students to do, if we're going to continue in this fragile experiment known as democracy, uh, it seems like they have to become critical, introspective, dangerous citizens. Mm -hmm. And by that we mean critiquing the taken for granted, critiquing uh, those apparent self-evident truths <laughs> that have been broken, right? To critique the words written on parchment in the Constitution. Um, and in doing so, to make the entire nation dizzy, right? But <laughs> that's what the United States fears. Dizziness yeah. is anathema it's because it's, it's that sense of, because to be not dizzy means that you are on track. You are oriented, as Sarah Ahmed says. You've already adopted an orientation, mm -hmm. but that orientation is leading to the deaths of millions abroad. It's leading to indifference to the poor, to those who suffer, to those who suffer from violence, uh, uh, those who are queer, uh, who undergo violence, the George Floyds, the Breonna Taylors, you name it. 
-hmm. So what we want to do, it seems to me that philosophy and philosophers have this incredible responsibility to upset the status quo. But quite frankly, I don't see too many philosophers doing this, right? Um, there's a way in which we do philosophy in the classroom, but then when we come out, we just become citizens, mm -hmm. right? Um, but no, I think that philosophical spirit, that disruptive way of being a gadfly, that disruptive way of, of practicing elenkas, critical questioning and cross-examination has to happen uh, within the public sphere because philosophy otherwise becomes irrelevant, inconsequential, and just this kind of esoteric thing that we do without any meaning to the real world or to our lives, right? And so often I'm constantly trying to realign who I am right. with the question of metaphilosophically, what is it that I'm practicing? Mm -hmm. that, that, I think that has to be a constant tension in philosophers. In scholars, generally, I think we have to continue to critique what it is that we do. If you're a historian, you have to think about what it means to do history at a meta level uh, and what that implies about the self that you are politically, aesthetically, emotionally, ethically. And that way you're keeping alive the two rather than balkanizing them in such a way that when you leave the classroom, philosophy's gone. Yeah, no. There must right? be silence, as you were saying. Yes. Letting <laughs> yeah. silence. Yeah. That, that's right. That's right. And that makes, of course, that makes philosophy very monastic, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And, and that's kind of what Descartes was doing, a very monastic enterprise. You go into your stove-heated room <laughs> and you contemplate, right? Um, but at some point, you have to come out it seems to me, and uh, the, the thing is, what's interesting is um, Descartes didn't raise this in his meditations, but even if, as he is in his stove-heated room, society is in that stove-heated room with him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't leave him. It's still yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. That's absolutely, and that's the na naivete of um, certain white metaphysics. I mean, society remains. Oh, that's European. right. In general. Oh, absolutely. That's right. Look, now we are called to, to, to write syllabi, to renew our syllabi. It's, at least uh, in, uh, in my university, we are trying to be more inclusive. There's the word the diversity that comes up very often. And uh, what do we do? <laughs> what are we doing? I mean, uh, in the light of what you were saying, uh, what does the word the diversity mean for you? How can we make this word actually meaningful and not another uh, miasma, another uh, stain, another? Yeah, I, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think we're there. Right? <laughs> uh, which isn't to say, right? I mean, because what, what we have to realize is, I mean, when you think about racial segregation or Jim Crow in the United States, what you're thinking about, obviously, or not what you're thinking about, but the reality is that black people were segregated from white people. Why? Well, because you don't want people who are inferior, who smell, who are ape-like around real human beings who are white, right? Uh, clear, um, that's white ideology. But within that structure, you see, if you look at the history of the movement, civil rights movement, the idea was to gain more inclusion, mm -hmm. to be recognized. Mm -hmm. So recognition and visibility and inclusion become important to a certain kind of political project. Mm 
And what I want to say, there's a part of me that says, that's what the civil rights movement was all about. It was about inclusion. But at the same time, we have to say, as one black civil rights theorist put it, you know, we're not protesting just to, to be able to eat a hamburger or a cheeseburger next to white people. You know, that's, that's not our goal, right? quite frankly. And I agree. Again, going back to Judith Butler's concept of an insurrection at the level of ontology, mm-hmm. there's a way in which I think that there has to be a different form of civil rights, black civil rights movement that has a very different understanding or radical understanding of diversity. Mm-hmm. Where again, inclusion doesn't reduce to the number of bodies that are in places or in high places. Because the fact of the matter is you can have black people occupy higher places, but those black people, it doesn't follow that they will have the requisite critical ideas mm-hmm. to challenge the forces that they that still continue to stand over them. We can put women, self-identified women in places of power, but what we find is that often capitalist logics and neoliberal mm-hmm. logics take over and they, and, and they can say, then we get to say, hey, look, George Yancey, he's a professor of philosophy at Emory, and he's black. Uh, haven't we made it? No, <laughs> we have not made it. There's a way in which uh, black academics, we have to critique and, and, and wonder whether or not we've just become neoliberal subjects in black. Mm-hmm. Neoliberal subjects in black. And that the idea of inclusion gives the institution, the academic institution, or whatever institution happens to be, when once it opens the doors, it gives them the moral authority and a feeling of satisfaction or satiation that, look, we are not racist or we are not sexist. So it seems to me that when they look out and they see the black faces and they say, look, why are you complaining? You've made it. <laughs> It's obvious that I'm asking for more than inclusion. <laughs> so, you know, this brings us back to the syllabus uh, that you were talking about. You know, in my I, in first days, the first day that I teach intro to philosophy, I immediately say, this is Western philosophy. I name it, I mark it. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly when I have a, a large diversity of students, say this is not Asian philosophy, it's not African philosophy, yeah. it's not... Uh, Latinx philosophy, it's not Chicano philosophy, uh, you name it. It's not any of those philosophies. So by doing that, I want my students to understand that we're not learning philosophy qua philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if there is something called philosophy qua philosophy, but if there is, it would go by the name of white philosophy (laughs) because they only do philosophy. After all, reason itself, as the myth goes, grew out of Greece itself, right? <laughs> Reason was given birth to out of Greece, as fanciful as that is. Yeah. So I, I, which is not completely wise, actually, if you think about <laughs> it. <laughs> That's right. So there's the, a the, the way in which it, uh, one tells the story mm. of Western civilization such that one whitewashes the whole history mm. so that you begin with the ancient Greeks all the way up to the American Empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Just one long stretch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that um, I think that what we need to do really 
is to pay more attention to that silent surplus that remains mm -hmm. after we include. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I've never said it that way, and so I'm glad you asked me. I've never, this is the first time I've said anything like that. If I, I'm gonna write it down. <laughs> silent, <laughs> I'm glad. Silent surplus, that's, that's really good that remains and uh, and there is a silent surplus so that when we when we think about diversity when we think about uh, how do we organize our syllabi um, there's a way in which we do that against the backdrop of what's normal I, look I, I remember taking a course when I was in, uh, in grad school when I was a, did grad uh, grad work at Duquesne and I took a course in African Ameri a grad course in African American lit and I remember uh, saying to the students, I was a student there too. I was the only black student there that day. And I remember telling the white students, look, I'm, I'm really, we were reading Frederick Douglass. And I said, I'm really upset by the way in which Douglass was treated, the way in which he was beaten, the way in which he was considered a beast, a burden. And I asked the white students, how did they feel about the white slave masters? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said, we haven't really thought about that. So while I could identify with Douglas, they could not identify with the white slave masters. There's a way in which they didn't see themselves implicated in the text. Mm -hmm. And I say that to say, there's a way in which African-American lit became black literature, where, where Shakespeare and Chaucer, it's not white literature or European literature, it's yes, it's literature. <laughs> but yet, as, as Black people, we're forced, when we're reading European literature, to identify ourselves with the characters. We're, when we watch television, when we watch movies where, where it's predominantly white characters, we, we have to empathize with white characters. It's, it's a hell of a burden to ask white people to, to watch movies that are all white, and yet to resonate with those themes and then to watch our own stuff with black characters and resonate there but they don't do the same right the, so the amount of labor that's done and so I'm, I'm saying that to say i think that it's not just about numbers it's not just quantitative there has to be a fundamental radical deracination of the silent surplus so mm -hmm. that we don't talk about Diversity. If diversity is going to always be linked to hegemony, mm -hmm. it seems to me that that's a questionable form of diversity. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that maybe there will be a time in our future where we don't talk about diversity. We talk about the state of the world yeah. as, I don't even want to call it equal, but we talk about the state of the world without its balkanizations. Mm -hmm where whiteness is no longer the center that continues to hold. Yeah. Because as long as whiteness holds, as long as patriarchy holds, as long as heterosexism as a structural force holds, as long as ableism continues to hold, there are ways in which those who are ostracized, those who are marginalized, and those who are um, interpolated as defective they will always try to become included within that structure. The logics of inclusion within the structure needs to change. So it is not an inclusion. It's, um, I, wish we had, I wish I had a better term. It's, um, 
it's the way the world is. That's, that's the best I can come up with, right? Since, since you're asking <laughs> such a challenging question, <laughs> it's, it's the way the world is. Yeah, yeah, yeah we are, uh, and Foucault saw it quite clearly. Yes. We are fixated with categorization, with uh, creating boxes as if uh, this makes our life easier and instead it's creating a living hell. It's incredible. Oh, oh, absolutely, and, and it seems to me you're right. There's a way in which we, we, on one hand, need certain kinds of categories to make certain kinds of distinctions, but there's, there's these other categories that are given birth to out of uh, a sense of entitlement mm -hmm. and a sense of dominance and domination and being at the apex of human civilization uh, or, or being the, the very quintessence of what is normal. That's when it seems to me that those categories, what they're designed to do is to serve the interests of the powerful. Yeah. Right? So before long, you find yourself, as I find myself, constantly having to break the categories or constantly having to confront the categories, right? Which, which is so much to ask of ourselves. You, you as a woman, me as a black man, you know, why should we have to confront those categories, those presuppositions, those superimpositions, those mythopoetic assumptions that box us in, that truncate our very being, which means on any given day, you wake up and you want to go into the world, as Franz Fanon says, you want to come, he wanted to come live into the world and move with effortless grace. And then he meets the white gaze. And all of a sudden, there is the pressure. There's the, there's the, as, as uh, Sarah Ahmed says, there's the phenomenology of being stopped right there, right? where now you have to re-question, or you're walking down the street as a white woman, or as a woman, and there are the cat calls, right? There's the humiliating stares, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, that, that, that us men think just are normal ways of looking at women. I don't think so. <laughs> those, are, those are habits that we've gotten from a system which is predicated on the hatred of women. Mm -hmm. on their dehumanization. So I think you're right. We have to deracinate those categories, destroy them, um, quite frankly, force them to implode. Uh, I would like to ask you one last question, which is uh, a little bit the theme of uh, this podcast. And it's uh, a huge question, but we'll see how we go. What do you think is the meaning of life? And... Uh, do you think that this meaning can be somehow connected to happiness or uh, happiness is something completely different? Um, how do you find meaning uh, in mm. all this? Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the kind of philosophy, that's the kind of question that philosophers love, of exactly. course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of course, I'm, I'm in process, uh, but to give, you, to give you the elevator pitch, as it were, <laughs> um, I think that for me, and it's a personal, it's very personal, um, put it this way, if God does not exist, by that I mean a being that is all loving, all omnibenevolent, um, that is uh, somehow sustaining uh, the cosmos itself, uh, sustaining us in our very being, uh, if there is no transcendent God in that sense, then it seems to me uh, that there is no uh, ultimate, I'm going to have an ultimate meaning to why we're here, right? I mean, I was thinking about the, the size of the, just to, to see how my thinking works. I was thinking about the size of the universe the other day, and 
turns out that the, the diameter of the universe is something like a 93 billion light years, 93 billion light years. Uh, that's big. And so I, I think that if God does not exist, then ultimately, ultimately life is meaningless. And I stress ultimately. So I have to go then with someone like a Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre or Simone de Beauvoir, that the only meaning um, that there is, is the meaning that we create. Mm -hmm. So if God does not exist, um, I think that the meaning of, the meaning that we bring to life, I should say that, the, 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 the meaning that uh, will fundamentally sustain us will be one in which as Martin Luther King would put it, the, the way in which all of us are part of a network uh, that are fundamentally, as we were saying early, mm -hmm. intricately sutured together so that for me to be happy, it is imperative that you are happy. Mm -hmm. For you to be happy, it's imperative that I am happy. For uh, Syrians who are fleeing war-torn countries, uh, I cannot be happy until they're happy, mm -hmm. right? I cannot be happy until those individuals who are queer are not murdered in the streets, right? Until, as counterintuitively as it may sound, those soldiers from Russia who are killing Ukrainians, until they understand um, what it means to love or for me to love them, that is requisite, it seems to me, the kind of happiness that I'm thinking about. Right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I can't separate out. Happiness for me is not that which is, uh, is that the accumulation of wealth, it's not the accumulation of things. Uh, those things obviously can give security. Uh, and security is important to happiness. But extravagant forms of security are not important to happiness, right? Um, and, and you know, I, so I'm not saying something very dreamy and uh, fantastic that says that child somewhere on the earth right now who is suffering from, from malnutrition, uh, 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 who, who is suffering from starvation and who is on the brink of dying. I'm not, my views are not so fanciful as to say that somehow um, that, that, that child is, is loved and that child is, is experiencing happiness. No, there are fundamental um, ingredients of that life that are missing. The child can't eat. There's no water. Malnutrition is, is, is not the, the condition for the possibility of happiness. So there are fundamental ingredients there, necessities. Sine qua non are important. But if God does not exist, what matters to me, again, is that my happiness is contingent upon yours. Mm -hmm. That if you're not happy, I'm not happy. If there's injustice anywhere in the world, as Martin Luther King might say, um, I can't be happy. How can I be when I'm implicated in that life? Mm -hmm. And so the, the vertical then, going back to the vertical and the horizontal, right. vertical collapses. If there is no transcendent being, then all we've got is the horizontal. Mm -hmm. And that means today, today mm -hmm. I have to make a difference in your life, in the life of my neighbor, or for that matter, begin to think about those individuals who are not my neighbors, 
But you know, the etymology of the term neighbor means to dwell near. And many of us don't want to dwell near. <laughs> Who wants to dwell near? Yeah, absolutely, right? So it's, it, you know, as long as, you know, you've got the, the, the conflagration between you know, Jews and Palestinians, or you name your balkanization, as long as there are those conflagrations, um, how can I be happy? Because I'm carrying the weight of their suffering as well. Now, that doesn't mean that for the majority of my day, I go around, you know, morbid or moping, right? No, I, I mean, I would, I would collapse, right? But, but then again, maybe to achieve the world that we need, perhaps we need to collapse. Uh -huh. Perhaps we need to fold under the weight of human suffering, um, such that love, uh, that as Baldwin says, removes the masks that we feel we cannot live without, but know we cannot live within. We have to remove our masks, mm. and removing our masks will become more vulnerable. And it's in that vulnerability, I think, in that reaching across those divides, where I'm most happy, where there is an affective intensity um, that speaks to a kind of wholeness. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if God does exist, <laughs> right, then for me, the, our, our meaning is greater than the meaning that we create. Mm -hmm. There is a transcendent meaning. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if there is such a being. So I have often called myself a Christian hopeful theist, putting emphasis on hopeful. Okay. Because I don't know. I wanted to ask. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. And, it, and it's that knowing that is part of the beauty. Because it requires then, it's not about epistemic certainty. It's about hope. It's about staring in the face of a possible abyss mm -hmm. and making that Kierkegaardian leap mm -hmm. of faith nonetheless, right? But I don't confuse the, 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 the vertical with the horizontal. Um, for me to do what I have to do, even if, the, even if the vertical exists, the fact of the matter is we continue to suffer. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and while I ask the question about where is God, where is God as, um, God as uh, um, um, oh, what is it, God, God as absent, mm -hmm. um, God as absconditus. Mm -hmm. um, while that question is still very uh, meaningful and very urgent, that question, the answer to that question, or the lack thereof, should not prevent us from doing the horizontal work that we have to do on the ground. So, if, so there's a way in which we love as if God does not exist. Mm -hmm. right? So I think that, for me, constitutes a meaningful life and that for me is linked to the very concept of what it means to be happy and that explains also the extreme productivity of your work i mean <laughs> <laughs> your horizontal way of looking at life seems to give you the push to to do and do and do it's uh, it's incredible what uh, you managed to produce in such a limited time so well thank you we are absolutely happy to have you as a member of uh, our community, of our society. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I thank you for doing the work that you're doing, because this really, this stretched me, particularly the, 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 the silent surplus concept. <laughs> I'm going to run with that now.
<laughs> I'm really, really glad. Thank you for uh, joining this conversation today, for being part of this conversation today and uh, joining this project. It My was pleasure. an absolute pleasure. Thank you.